In Luke chapter 24, uh, we read the story that we have, um, we have titled The Road to Emmaus in our Bibles. Uh, and a, a fascinating story, but what is happening in The Road to Emmaus is the two uh, disciples of Jesus are walking along this path on the way to uh, a destination. And as they're on their way, they encounter the risen Jesus. Right? They encounter a resurrected Christ, but they don't recognize who he is, of course, right? And so in their, in their, uh, their journey, as they encounter Jesus, they, they uh, begin a conversation with him. And he, he asks the question, he says, you know, what are you guys talking about? They've been conversing the whole way. And, he, and they, uh, they respond in this kind of incredulous manner. They're like, um, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock, right? Are you the only person in all of Jerusalem that does not understand what has happened these, these many days? And Jesus plays right along with them. He goes, what? You know, like, going, God. Anyway, so, so it says, what? And they, they begin to share this story, this idea of Jesus. And they talk about the fact that he was a prophet and that there was this great hope in who he was. And then there's this one line in Luke 24 that just stands out to me in such a profound way. Here's what happens. Uh, as they ask the question or as they ask him if he's you know, been living under a rock and, and he responds with what's going on, uh, they describe him as a prophet and then they say this. They say, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Do you hear what's happening with these people in this moment? They were hoping, but what has happened to their hope? Their hope is gone. Their hope has been frustrated. And why has their hope been frustrated? Because to them, they backed the wrong horse. To them, Jesus died on a cross. Jesus was buried in a tomb, and there was a period on the story, right? They lost their hope because of this. But what they were longing for was the redemption of Israel, it's my opinion that uh, every one of us is longing for redemption. I believe that we are a people who seek redemption in everything. I believe that we are built to hear and to live by redemption stories. And I believe we long for those redemption stories. The word to redeem here is, is pronounced apolotrosis. And it, and it means something interesting. It means to repurchase uh, a repurchase which emphasizes the distance or a safety margin that results between the rescued person and what previously enslaved them. In layman's terms, the idea of redemption here is saving, right? A rescue from something. But this isn't always the way we use the word redemption, is it? How many of you have ever said, we should redeem the time? right? You've said that phrase, redeem the time. You don't mean to say, if you're redeeming the time, that you want to create a safety margin between a rescued person and what previously enslaved them, or a new time and what was previously there, do you? That's not what you mean. When you say you want to redeem time or redeem the time, here's what we really mean. We want the time spent to mean something. Isn't that true? How many of you want the time in your life to mean something? How many of you have struggled with that? You look back on your life and you think, I'm not sure most of it meant anything. How many of you are struggling with it now? Right? 
We are a people who need stories of redemption. We have redemption built into us, and we long for it. And what we mean by redemption and what we long for is that we want life to be of value. We want what we've done to be of value. Now, on Easter, what we celebrate is the fact that Jesus actually sees us and says we are of value, and so he's willing to go to every length necessary, even death on a cross, to make us know and understand that we are of value, and to give us life, and to give us something bigger. But sometimes that story is just a little too much for us. Sometimes that story is, is fairy tale esque and so we kind of don't, we don't process it really well. But, again, the truth is, we were built for redemption stories. We were built for this idea. Uh, Modern psychology has uh, kind of laid out three major phases of people's lives. Three major phases of people's lives. Uh, And the age ranges are interesting because they they can vary, I suppose. So the first first phase in, in life is roughly up to the point of 13 years old. The second phase is the largest phase, and that's somewhere between 13 and about 60. And then there's the final phase. I know some of you are like, hey, watch it, mister, right? The final phase of life, but let me explain what I'm getting at. For the first 13 years of human life, what psychologists seem to discover is that we are asking pretty simple questions. The simple questions are this, what are the rules by which we live? What are the rules of this life? How are we supposed to play this game, right? And so we discover this. This is why as a kid, we should be trained up. The truth is, all kids are trained up in some way. The question should be, as a parent, is it the right way, (laughs) right? Because they will go the way you train them, I promise you. I mean, of course, there's rebels. We understand that. You get the exception to the rule, but what I'm I'm pointing out is that's, that's how training works, right? And so you're teaching them the system or the morals or the rules by which we're supposed to live. So that's what happens in that first phase. Most people in that first phase of life are not asking deep or profound questions, at least not every second of every day. They're often asking questions of, am I allowed to do this? Should I do that? Should I not do that? Okay? That's what happens in that first phase. And, and so psychologists, what they do is they take study after study and they, and they ask people the questions that are governing them. And this is the kind of typical question that governs people under 13 years old. The second phase of life is, is interesting because the second phase of life says, now that I understand the rules, how can I walk a journey in life according to whatever rule set I've been given? How can I do it? How can I perform according to this rule set that has been given to me? And they go even further and they ask the question, how can I love someone in accordance with that rule set? And how do people love me in accordance with that rule set? Okay? And so that governs most of us uh, in this room, right? So we're in that middle phase of life, and we're trying to figure out the journey that we're on and whether or not that journey is according to the rules or according to the system that we've been built in and whether or not the people that are in relationship with us love us and we love them according to those rules. It's a very fascinating thing. There's challenge when we try to speed this process up. It's a challenge when you try to make children or people under the age of 13 say it's it's a challenge when you try to make them figure out the journey they're on when they're only figuring out the rule set okay this is what happens we push kids too fast 
okay? It's not that we are raising children. You guys know my opinion on this. We are not raising children. We are raising adults. The society we live in is a result that people have been raising children for too long, right? So, so we have grown children. But we're raising adults, but at a certain level, they reach a maturity that can move on. That second phase is asking about the journey. But here's where the third phase comes in. And here's where the story of redemption unfolds. And that is, that third phase is asking this question. Has the journey I've been on been worth it? Has it been worth it? Have I succeeded? Have I done everything in accordance with what I was trained and what I was taught? And then, two other questions that are related to each other. Do I have somebody who loves me and do I love someone or someones, right? Is there, a, is there a community that you have, right? And so you're asking that question. It's interesting because the reason why at the end of life we begin to ask that question in that third phase is because we need our life to have made sense. We need our life to have been a life of value. We need redemption, right? We need everything to make sense. So, so what we do is we, we go through a crisis. We go through whether, whether it's a midlife crisis or a three-quarter life crisis or what, whatever it might be. We go through these things and we start to freak out because we start to say, gosh, have I done anything correct? And so what we do then is we start to answer our question because, as I've shared many times, we are meaning-generating people. We need life to be valuable, and we need it to make sense to us. How many of you know that? This is why we create worldviews. This is why we establish worldviews. We say, here's what I think is the reason for being or existence or whatever. And we make a story up, and hopefully those stories are based on evidence and reason and all of those things, but we make a story up because we deeply need life to matter. Have you ever met somebody that says, doesn't? Life is just nonsense. I'm just going to live here 80 years, and then I'm going to die, and everybody's going to forget about me. Have you met that person? Are you that person? <laughs> I've met some of you in this church. Anyway, right? So, so, but, the, but the idea is that that is actually rare. Most people are like, it can't just be that. How many of you have said that? This can't be all there is to life. This is what we do, right? And so we're looking for meaning. We're looking for something bigger than everything. This is what we see on the road to Emmaus. We see two disciples walking on this road going, what in the world happened? What in the world happened? And then when they get an encounter with Jesus, they're like, we thought. We figured he was. He should have been. We hoped that he would be the redemption of Israel. They were looking for all of this past three years or four years of their life to make any sense whatsoever. Same thing happens in John chapter 20 when we encounter Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't love the other ones, right? He was just special and God's favorite, like I am. Anyway, so anyway, <laughs> so, right? So, so, so we... It's true, take it up with him. Anyway, so, okay, so, so Mary Magdalene is said to have gone early in the morning, and she goes to the tomb, and she finds the tomb is already open, okay? Uh, if you read it in conjunction with the other Gospels, what you discover by putting all the stories together is that Mary didn't go alone. Mary was with other women when they, when they went to the tomb, right? 
And so they go there, but they find nothing there. Now, Mary's story is interesting because as Mary finds nothing there, she runs and gets the other disciples, Peter and the one whom Jesus loved, right? And those two have a foot race back to the tomb, and John wins because he's God's favorite. Anyway, so, right, but, but anyway, so, so they, they have this race back. And then you have three people who really have different reactions to what they're observing, but they're, they're trying to make sense of everything that they see. Mary looks at the situation, and she kind of panics. She looks at the situation and wonders, what has happened to her Savior, her King, the one that she thought was all these things? And so she's wondering what happened. We're going to get to her words in just a second. With regard to Peter, though, Peter is this guy who walks in, and he kind of just observes things. And all we know is that Peter just kind of sees it, and that's it. It's like, okay. Some of us, when it comes to making sense of stories, some of us, when it comes to trying to make sense of the weird stuff that has happened or the hard stuff that happens in life, all we do is we just kind of observe it, kind of look at it and go, I don't know, this is really strange. And Peter seems to do this. John, on the other hand, it says something very different of John. It says that John peeks his head into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths and he sees the head wrap uh, rolled up in another place and he looks at it and it says, and John believed. But up to this point, John actually, just like anybody else, didn't really make the connection of resurrection, okay? They didn't fully make the connection. But he sees this and he goes, okay. Based on the evidence, I have to make some sense of the situation. Why would you steal a body but leave the clothing? You can imagine John running through this scenario. Why would you do that? Why would the face wrap be rolled up as if the guy himself took it off, right? Why would that be the case? But whatever it is, whether it's a combination of human reasoning or divine inspiration and power, John recognizes what's happening. And it's amazing. He's like, and he believed, okay? Peter, on the other hand, is just like, okay, we'll figure it out. But then, again, we have Mary, and this is really fascinating. Mary is confused. Mary says uh, in verse, let's see here, verse 15 and 16 of John chapter 20, Jesus says to Mary, he says, woman, why are you weeping? That's, that's Mary's disposition right now. She's crying. Whom are you seeking, Jesus says? Supposing him to be the gardener, remember the road to Emmaus? They didn't know who that guy was either, right? Jesus is always hanging out with us, and we're not actually paying attention to who he is. Anyway, so supposing that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And then there's this most powerful moment that if we don't read it Slowly and carefully, I think we miss one of the most powerful, intimate, personal moments inside of Scripture. It says, Jesus said to her, Mary. That's it. He didn't go into an explanation. John looked at the evidence. He seems to make a reason for everything. Peter just kind of looks in. We don't know what he's thinking. Mary is crying. She's supposing that the person talking to her is the gardener. Somebody has stolen the body. Just tell me where it is. And Jesus simply says, Mary. And that simple recognition of her identity wakes her up completely. She turns and she says 
to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, Rabbani, right? Which means teacher. In this moment where Jesus just looks at her and says, Mary, she understands who this is and what has happened. You look at this and you say, big deal, Nathan, that doesn't matter. Well, here, here's the deal with regard to redemption and regard to making sense of stories in our life. Sometimes we look at the evidence of life and we try to make sense of it. Amen? Sometimes we're looking at the cloth. Sometimes we're looking at the, the, the lack of presence of our Savior. Sometimes we're looking at the way somebody talks or the way somebody does something and we make sense of a story. We, we understand it. Sometimes it's evidence. Sometimes we choose to just not know. It's like, I think life needs to make sense, but I have no idea how to make it make sense. So I'll just ride the, ride the ride. It appears in some sense that might be what Peter is doing. But there's also a way that redemption comes and it makes sense of life when you don't know the facts, you don't know the details, you don't understand how it all works, how it's all going to play out, but what you do have is a savior and a king who knows your name. Sounds really, really corny and warm and fuzzy to some of you guys. And to me, my, my anti-emotional side is like, shut up, Nathan, you're driving me crazy. But the reality still is that God knows our name. And sometimes that's all that is necessary to make sense of a story. There are some things that you're going through in this life. There are some things that you're facing right now that you don't need the answer to. What you do need is God to say, I'm here. Relax. It'll be all right. Amen? This is important. We need to understand that redemption can work in this way. So as we look through the story of the resurrection, though, we're not just trying to make sense of a hard week or a hard month or a hard year of life. We're actually reading a story and hearing a story that makes sense of the ultimate meaning of life, the ultimate why all of this happens, right? Here's some fascinating things about redemption. Redemption is not just a story that we need. Redemption is a story that was written before we existed, that's what Ephesians says. It says, before the foundation of the world, God foreordained our redemption through Christ Jesus. What in the world is that? That means that God absolutely knew we would mess things up. He's kind of smart that way, right? And in case you think that that's really crazy or really outlandish, how many of you are parents in this room? How many of you can just look at your kid and go, you're going to do something stupid today, Right? <laughs> How many of your kids did something stupid? Very stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know this, right? Right? Okay. So we can see it. There's some way that we recognize this idea, whatever it is, right? So, so God, is, God is not only wired into us a, a desire that life would make sense or that time would have meaning to it and life would have purpose, but he's actually designed it in that he is a God of redemption. He is a God of meaning and purpose. There is nothing in this life that is purposeless. There's nothing in this life that is purposeless, even, even the, the challenges and the frustrations that you face in life. Scripture says this, it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
It says that God works, number one. It says he works all things. It doesn't say God works the good things together. How many of you know that even the bad things are there to help you and to teach you? There's redemption in the chaos. There's redemption in frustrating people that you have to sit next to every day. Jerry Clust. There's, <laughs> there's, there is redemption in every hiccup and every crazy story. But there's redemption in it because God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Our responsibility is simply to love God. Right? And to be called according to his purpose. You knew who else understood this after all of his pursuits in life? Solomon did. Solomon looked at life the way some of us do, based on the question that I asked earlier. Solomon looked at life and asked the question, is everything just worthless and pointless? Is there a meaning to any of this? On one end, Solomon looks like he's concluding this, everything in life is just sheer vanity and it's stupid. It's actually not what I believe Solomon is concluding. I believe Solomon is teaching a lesson. And what I want everybody to see is that there is a time of hopelessness. There's this time where we think everything is nothing. And then God comes in and says, let me tell you what the meaning is. Fear me and keep my commandments. Why? Because there's purpose in living a reflected image, uh, living or reflecting God's image into the world. There's purpose. There's meaning for you. Guess where that meaning unfolds? Only in church on Sunday morning. No, <laughs> right? That's, that's stupid, right? That meaning unfolds when you go to work every day. That meaning unfolds when you encounter the person at the grocery store. That meaning unfolds when you're sitting down with your friend and you're talking about life's issues and they wonder why everything seems so hopeless. That meaning unfolds. Your purpose, your reflecting of God into the world happens every second of every day if you will let it, right? If you'll let it. We are a people who need life to make sense. We need it to make sense, even the bad stuff, and it can in its ultimate sense when we understand that Jesus has has set everything back to right so that we might live a life recognizing it has purpose and getting back on track of reflecting his glory into the world. Guys, in the garden, that's what went wrong. We sidestepped the plan. We said, eh, whatever, we'll do it our way. God goes, that's going to cause problems, and sure enough, it did. But then, 2,000 years ago, he comes, he dies on a cross, he bleeds, he's broken, but he does all of that stuff to make everything in your life make sense, to make everything in your life have purpose, okay? Will you recognize the purpose of every aspect of your life in this day and age? No, you won't. How do you deal with that? Do you struggle with it? Do you wonder what to do? I know that people do. And let me tell you how we struggle with it. We try to medicate it. We don't understand why things happen. So we give ourselves to drugs or whatever it might be that take us way over the top. Why? Because we haven't found a meaning for the mess that is happening in life. 
But the answer is not going to be found in those things. The answer is never going to be found in those things. The answer is going to be found when you humble yourself and you run to the one who knows your name. Okay? Meaning is going to be found when you look to God and see that even when you can't work all things together for good, he works all things together for good. It's not that he can, he does. Right? Redemption is a fascinating concept, and it's something that we, we breathe every day and we long for every day. We just need to embrace what Jesus did on the cross. So, why do we need redemption stories? We need our life to be valuable. We need our life to be valuable. Nobody thinks otherwise. Why do we need redemption stories? We need hope that will move us forward. You know what the Bible says? It says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. That's depressing, right? You have hope, you have hope, and then all of a sudden it's squashed, and you're like, what the heck's the point? How many of you have felt that way with ventures or journeys in your life? It's depressing, isn't it? But even when those things don't seem to have an end, what did the cross prove 2,000 years ago? That God is still working for you. God is still working all things together for your good. We need hope, and it moves us forward. Why do we need redemption stories? We were made with redemption in view. Before the foundation of the world, God planned our redemption. And why do we need redemption stories? Because, truth be told, church, there is meaning in life. This is where we get into our de debates and our issues with our unbelieving friends. What they do out of genuine pursuit, because they're wired just like you. Out of genuine pursuit and often out of very humble motives. Everybody who's not a believer in Jesus is not walking around some arrogant fool uh, mocking God all the time. There are those who do it. But many people who don't look to God, they're looking for meaning in their life. And they're trying to find it in a thousand things. You could find it in sports, you could find it in work, you can find it in relationships, you can find it in all those things. What does all that sound like? It sounds like that middle road that I talked about in the beginning where we're looking to apply all the rules that we've learned on the path of our life and make sure that we have somebody to love us and someone that we can love. We're all doing it. The problem is those cannot be the end in life. Those are not what redeem us. Those things make life fun. Those things make life joyful. But that is not the end of all things. And so our unbelieving uh, brothers and sisters in the world, or fellow humans in the world, they are all longing for meaning just like you. The challenge is they can't see Jesus as the provider for that ultimate meaning. Okay? And they need to see him that way. And how do they see him that way? Because you tell him, you tell them about this king. You tell them about the one who will work all things together for their good if they will trust him. You tell them that even if they have sinned and fallen short, which they have, you tell them that God wants to come and to wash that away. You tell them that if they're blind, they can see because you once were and now you can, right? You're telling them a message that simply says there is meaning to life. There is redemption. There is a story, and it's for you. 
And then you tell them this crazy thing that even the people of Jesus' day struggled with. And that is, it happened 2,000 years ago on a wooden cross where three days later, the guy on it rose from the dead. And your unbelieving friends are going to look at you and go, you're crazy. And then you can open up Luke and you can open up John and you can say, even the people who followed him closely went, "Uh uh-oh, we screwed it up. We backed the wrong horse. We don't know who this guy is. But then he proves himself, right? God is proving who he is in all ways, all the time, church. So why do we need redemption stories? We need life to be valuable. We need hope, which moves us forward. We were made with redemption in view before the foundation of the world. And lastly, because life has meaning. Why do we need the redemption that Jesus offers? Because when moments of life appear irredeemable, resurrection says otherwise. Resurrection says otherwise. So, I talk about this all the time, that we're a meaning-generating people, right? Everyone in, everyone in the world is looking at the evidence of life, they're looking at the situations of life, and they're trying to come to conclusions, trying to make sense of things. I think we ought to be a little bit more humble in our conversations for the simple sake that um, none of us here have everything right. Can I get an Amen. Can I get an amen without mockery? Because you don't have everything right, right? This is really important, right? We don't have everything figured out, so we ought to have our conversations with a little bit of humility, right? But everybody is looking for uh, meaning to something. I was having a conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm currently in school because I'm always in school. Anyway, and, uh, and so I'm taking this neurobiology class, and it's a fascinating class because... The teachers who hold to very clear secular worldviews um, really got themselves in a pickle because I joined the class, right? So, um, so I, I have discovered something about, about higher education, something you probably already knew, but something about higher education, and that is that professors find it easy and don't even think about uh, indoctrinating young kids who don't know... I've got, I've got phrases that shouldn't be used right now. But anyway, so, right, that don't, that don't know anything or squat. I like that one, right? So, so they do this. And then all of a sudden, there's this 43-year-old young man. That's what I am. Anyway, so 40, 43-year-old young man who walks in and goes, time out. I got problems with your ideas. I got problems with your ideas. And guess what? I'm not just going to look at you and say, you're wrong because I said so. Nuh-uh. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to write up some crazy review or some real crazy idea and share it with them. I did this in my neurobiology class to the point where my professor finally issued a memo to the entire class, 362 of us or something, finally issued a memo. And here's what his memo said. He said, it is a a, uh, misunderstanding It is a misunderstanding to believe that only people of faith, only people of a religious worldview have faith. He said, all people, even scientists, have to operate in some kind of faith. You know why he issued that statement? Because I showed him what faith actually is according to a definition, not what people think it is, right? And so I had this discussion with him. What is happening here is that I have a a meaning for life. 
I have a meaning for life. He's generated meanings for his life. And the only way that we're ever going to solve who's right or how to think about this better is to have conversations about it, right? So we've got to tell people about our meaning. So we're generating meaning. I'm generating meaning. He's generating meaning. And then all of a sudden we have this clash of ideas that come together. And he came out and he actually issued a statement to the whole class saying, as a matter of fact, everybody has to have some kind of faith. Why? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That sounds a lot more like science than fairy tales. Substance and evidence is what it is, right? Right? So, so I'm having this idea. And what's really fun is it gives me this opportunity to start talking about redemption and talking about life and talking about all these things with people who need a worldview, who need to make sense of things, but can't. Or at least they can't in truth. Right? The cross proves to us this beautiful thing. It proves to us that there is meaning to life and God is the one who established that meaning. If he can raise from the dead, church, if he can die and take on our sins, defeat sin and death and the grave, if he can do those things and he can come back to life, I think he probably understands redemption. I think he understands meaning. I think he understands purpose. And he alone is the one who gives it to us. Okay? So, why do we need to, uh, we need the redemption story that Jesus offers to all? Here's the really harsh truth. Because apart from Jesus, there is no redemption story. Apart from Jesus, here is the end. You will live your lauded life and you will die and you will turn into worm food. How's that for an Easter message? Anyway, that's what happens without the message of Jesus. But with the message of Jesus, you don't even have that as a, as a possibility. The possibility, the, the truth is this. You were always made to reflect his image. You sinned and fell short of the glory of God. All of us did. But... Christ, while we were yet sinners, that is, while we were rebels of God, still was planning our redemption. It's amazing. He offers everything for us. And guess what the promised prize is? It's a relationship with him forever. Guys, the cross is so much bigger than we think, so much bigger than we understand. G.K. Chesterton, speaking of redemption, said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Instead, it has been found difficult and left untried. But it is the only thing that frees a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of this age. Let me translate. It's the only thing that redeems. It's the only thing that redeems, church. Chesterton also said that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Why? Because there's no such thing as redemption being moderately important. You're all looking for it. I'm looking for it every day of my life. I need my life to make sense. And this is the only story that actually makes it make sense. Here's the last beautiful piece of it. This truth is available to 
every human being in the world. God does not have, as Dwayne showed us a couple of weeks ago, a daisy where he goes, I love you, I love you not. I love you, I love you not. He does not pick and choose in such weird, erratic ways. He has said, if you will trust me, you have the kingdom. If you will trust me, you have my heart, and I will protect yours. Isn't that amazing? That's what happened 2,000 years ago. That's what Resurrection Sunday is about. The only story that gives meaning to life and redeems each one of us. Amen?